I want to begin by telling you what you would have seen if you had been in Boston three weeks ago at the corner of Hereford and Boylston Street. That's where the finish line of the Boston Marathon is. If you'd been there, you would have seen early on in the morning those professional runners come across the finish line. And then after those professional runners, you would have seen those really strong young men and women that train all year. They would have come across. But as the day waned on and as the light got a little bit longer, you would have seen coming down the home stretch some of those last people who were finishing. And in a group of runners, you might have seen a woman named Michelle Blackburn, maybe. You might not have noticed her in the crowd. But if you looked closer, what you would have seen is that on her legs were some pretty significant scars, scars that were there from shrapnel, from a bomb. Michelle Blackburn had been at the Boston Marathon in 2013 at the very same finish line. She wasn't there as a runner. She was there to cheer on her friend. She'd never run a marathon before. But as she was waiting for her friend to come across, two feet away from her, a bomb went off and damaged her legs so bad that they nearly had to amputate one of her feet. And so then 10 years later, you would have seen Michelle Blackburn making her way up the home stretch to go to that finish line. Think for a second what kind of courage it would have taken to do that. And as she came across that finish line, if you knew that backstory, if you knew what had gone before, you might have come to the conclusion that the only good description, the only way to really describe what was going on there was that it was a miracle. And it's not just things that go on the course of a marathon. It also takes place, well, if you'd been standing out there in the lobby of Renaissance Church today, you might have seen come, somebody come through the door of the church it might have been a young single mom. It might have been an older man. I don't have anybody in specific in my mind right now. I just do know, though, that there are a number of people here in this room right now who, if you knew their backstory, if you knew the burdens that they were bearing, if you knew how difficult their circumstances had been to see them come through the doors of this church, you would have begun to come to the conclusion that the only way to describe it was that there is a God who brings light out of darkness and who brings joy out of despair and who brings life out of death. Even if you're a person who doubts, and I'm one of those people, I sometimes struggle to believe, but sometimes you see something that can only be described as a miracle. That's what we've been talking about the last, well, this is the second week, I suppose, a series on miracles. And, you know, some miracles are easier to see. Some miracles are really sort of powerfully visible to us. But then there are other miracles that are a little bit harder to see, but no less miraculous. No less the result of God's power working in a profound way. And the story that I want us to look at today has both kinds. It has a really powerful miracle that's going to be impossible for us to not see. But there are going to be some other miracles, too, that we really do need to see, that we're going to have to use a different kind of vision for, but they're going to be worth seeing, and they're going to help us to become the people that God wants us to be. So I want us to look today, right now, at Mark chapter 2. If you brought a Bible along, you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, but if you didn't, the passage will come up right back uh, behind me right here. 
And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Today in the story, I want us to see three miracles. I want us to see the miracle that we need. I want us to see the miracle that we want. And I want us to see the miracle that is in our hands, the miracle in our hands. Let's begin with the miracle that we need. The very first story, the very first miracle in the story is the miracle that we need. Now, when this story opens, the first thing that you see is a very large crowd, and the crowd is made up of all different kinds of people. Some of the people that are there are people who want Jesus to perform a miracle for them. There's lots of sick people there that want to be healed. And there's lots of injured people who want to be restored in some way. There are a lot of people who have heard that Jesus has the power given to him by God to heal people. And so there are there, uh, people who want to receive that. There are also people there who want to be taught. People who, as they've heard Jesus teach, they understand that he has an authority that comes from God, that he has a wisdom that's not like any other wisdom. That when they heard him, they thought, there is no other teacher like Jesus. And I know that some of you know that. There is no other teacher like Jesus. There's a third group of people there, religious people, Bible teachers like me, and they're very suspicious of Jesus. They're there, religious leaders and uh, scribes and law keepers, and they are there because they're suspicious of Jesus. They don't like a lot of what he's doing. They don't like the miracles that he's doing because they break with the traditions that they hold dear. They also don't like him because he does this strange thing. He seems to want to care for people and welcome people and love people no matter what they believe or no matter what they do. People who are doing the wrong things, he blesses them and cares for them and does miracles for them. People who believe the wrong things, he, un, uh, with no prejudice, just goes ahead and blesses them. They don't like that either. But maybe the thing that they don't like the most is that most of the teaching that he's doing is about himself. A lot of times he's directing attention to himself. He is talking as if he is the answer to any possible question that you could come up with. 
So these Bible teachers, they don't like that at all. This crowd is full of people who want miracles and they want to be healed and they want to be taught. And there's people who are suspicious of him. A whole big group of people. That's the first thing that you see when the scene comes uh, before you. The second thing, though, that you see uh, are a group of friends. A group of friends who want to do something beautiful for a friend of theirs that's in trouble. A friend of theirs that can't walk, he's a paralytic. We don't know why. Maybe it was from birth. Maybe it was because of an accident. We don't know. But their friends, these friends, carry their friend to Jesus. But when they arrive at the house where they hear that Jesus is going to be, they realize they're too late. The crowd is surrounding the house. The door is completely blocked. There's no way for them to get there. But these friends are creative. And these friends are imaginative. These friends also must have been rather strong and agile because somehow they get their friend up on the roof. This is their imaginative answer to this perplexing problem they have. Look at this. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, could not get near Jesus, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I want us to get as clear a picture of this as we possibly can get. The first specificity I want us to get on this picture is one that I don't think we'll be able to do, but I want us to think about it anyway. How did they get on the roof? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us. I mean, was it a tree? Was it a ladder? We don't know. But I am in awe of their creativity. And I am in awe of their persistence. They get there and the door is blocked and that is not going to stop them. They get up on the roof. But I also want us to get a picture of what's going on on the roof. I don't want you to make the same mental mistake that I've made over the years because whenever I've thought about the story, it says they let their friend down through the roof. And I thought, well, the roof must have been made out of palms or grass or straw or some other soft material. That doesn't make any sense because people in the first century had no less common sense than you do. You wouldn't have a roof made of straw. It would let the rain in and let the elements in. And in fact, historically speaking, roofs at this time were made out of timber. And then that timber would be woven through with brush or other material and then coated with mud and pitch to make it watertight. So they're up on there on a very stable roof, which makes the words that they use for what they do to that roof really funny to me. It says they removed the roof. (laughs) And it said, this sounds so innocuous, they made an opening, which sounds really innocuous unless it's your roof. Do you want somebody to make an opening on your roof? I don't think you probably do. That's the scene up on top of the house. Now the scene in the house itself. Jesus is there, and he's teaching. And there's a big crowd around him. And I expect maybe there's quiet as he's talking, and he's talking, and all of a sudden, they hear, (laughs) and they look up, and a hole starts to open in the roof above them, and dust is coming down, and dirt, and pieces of wood, and straw, And I can't expect that the person whose house it was was very fond of seeing this happen to his roof. And the light is coming down through the roof and then it begins to get darker and it gets darker because a person is being let down through that roof. And that person is let down through the roof and then Jesus says something really strange to this man that's let through the roof and something really wonderful to him. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I say this is strange and this is wonderful. Here's why. It's wonderful because Jesus is speaking as if he has the authority and the right to walk into the Supreme Court of Heaven as the one true judge and anything he says is absolutely true and will last for eternity. He walks in, what he says stands, that's it. There's no other thing to say about it. He's talking as if he is the shepherd of this person's soul and that he wants this person to receive forgiveness of sins. He says it and it's true. That's the wonderful thing. Here's the strange thing though. The strange thing is that this person has been let down through the roof for a reason. He has a great need and it's not the one that Jesus addresses. Because these friends who let their friend down through the roof, they had in mind what this person's greatest need was. He can't walk. And if you'd ask anybody in that house at that time, you'd say, what is his greatest need? You'd say, he can't walk. And if I was to point him out to you right today, I'd say, what is the greatest need this person has? You'd say, oh, it's really, he can't walk. But when Jesus looks at this person, he says, oh, I know your greatest, you have a great need. Your sins are forgiven. It's a strange thing to say. And you can imagine it was probably pretty perplexing to his friends up there on the roof. They're looking down through the hole. What's he saying? He says his sins are forgiven. His sins are forgiven? Yeah, Jesus said his sins are forgiven. It's actually his legs. Um, we were hoping that he, he can't walk. But it turns out that this person has a greater need than that. It turns out that Jesus wants to perform a miracle that he needs. Now, we're going to get to the miracle that he wants. That's the second point. But we have to stop here because this is where Jesus starts. He starts, he says, of all the needs that this person has, the greatest miracle that I can perform for him right now, the miracle that he needs, and now listen, we're all going to be part of this, the miracle that we all need Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's what he says to this man, and that's what we all need as well. And if the miracle that you need is that you need your sins to be forgiven, then we need to think about that. We need to think about what it means for us to have our sins be forgiven. Now, I would think that probably most of the time when you think about sins being forgiven, the first thought that you would have is that God has laws, and sometimes you and I break them. We transgress God's law, and because we transgress God's law, we need to be forgiven. And do you know, that is an absolutely biblical and faithful way to think about forgiveness of sins. The first way we think about it is a wrongdoing against the people around us who are made in God's image, and it's also rebellion against God himself, who has given us laws that are good, and that are for our good, and that are for our growth, and for our beauty. And when we transgress those laws, we've offended against our good lawgiver. And something happens. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that we do need forgiveness. When we transgress God's law, and that he has the authority to forgive us our sins. No one else does. But he has the authority to forgive us our sins. All have sinned. All of us. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. 
But we are justified and forgiven by God's grace. And we're given a picture of this here. What each one of us needs, the miracle every person here needs, anybody that can hear me, we need the forgiveness of Jesus. That is an absolutely faithful and good way to think about what it means to have your sins forgiven. But it's not the only way. Sin and the forgiveness of sins goes far deeper. It's far wider. It's, far, it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. And, and here's one of the ways that you can see that. If you go to the very beginning of the Bible, what's the first thing that God wants you to know? You turn the first page of the Bible and you hear a story about God giving a law to two people, Adam and Eve. God gives them a garden in which they can flourish. He gives them a garden in which they can work, use their gifts, be a steward of this creation that God has given, this garden. And God says, I do have one law. I have one rule that I want you to keep. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one law. But somehow they don't think that that's enough. They have every fruit in the garden. They have everything and they think that God is holding out on them. You know, sometimes that's the case. You have all kinds of blessings in front of you and you think God's holding out on you. So they break that law. And when they break that law and when they break faith with God, something breaks inside of them. And I know that every single one of you knows what I'm talking about right now. I don't know whether you're a Christian or not. I know a lot of people here are. Maybe not all of you are. But you know that when you break a law of love, God's law, you know when you say something that isn't true or when you do something that's unkind, it's not just that you're breaking a law. Something breaks inside of you. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. They break God's law and something breaks inside of them. And when they do that, they start to get filled with fear. And they start to get filled with shame. They start protecting themselves from each other and they don't want to see each other and they don't want to be seen and they don't want God to see them. And everything begins to fall apart. They get filled with shame and they begin to hide from each other and they begin to hide from God. And listen now, after this happens, after this thing breaks inside of them and after they get scared and ashamed of each other and they don't want to see God, I want you to see what happens. This is the gospel Beloved, this is what God does when we break ourselves in the breaking of his law. Look at this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Here's another way to think about what sin does to us. Sin is getting lost. God is coming and says, where are you? And he has to say that because they are lost. They are lost from the path of goodness and gentleness and patience and love and kindness that God would have them be on. What it means to be lost is to be off of that path. It means getting lost from the people around you. You know, sometimes when you get separated from the people around you, you start to put up walls. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want them to talk to you. You begin to put up walls. You don't do it. You're getting lost. You get lost from yourself. You get lost from the knowledge that you're called to something good. You're called to faithfulness. You're called to kindness. And pretty soon, sometimes of us, sometimes we get lost from that. We get completely lost and we think our life is our own. We can do what we want. That's getting lost. Getting lost is getting lost from the knowledge that you are a beloved child of God, that he loves you forever. But sometimes we put walls up and we stick our fingers in our ear and we don't want to hear it anymore for whatever reason. Getting lost from God himself. Do you see how Do you see how getting lost is another way to think about this sin 
that is racking Adam and Eve in the story and that racks every single one of us. And look at what God does when we get lost. He comes and he says, where are you? And you know, you could read the Bible from beginning all the way through. And in some ways, the story of the Bible is God again and again and again saying to his people, where are you? Where are you? No, 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 you're getting lost. Where are you? And it goes all the way to the story that we're in today. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, you were lost, but now you're found. Look at what he calls him. Son, you're home. Don't, don't run from home anymore. Don't run from me. I'm your elder brother. You have a good father. Don't run away. You've been lost a long time, but now you're home. And this is another way for us to think about what it means when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It's another way for us to think about what is the miracle that you really need? And that's the miracle that we all need. Some of us maybe need it for the very first time. Maybe you've never thought of yourself lost like this. You need to be found. And maybe you've understood yourself to be lost and you continually need the shepherd of the sheep to come after you. He's a good shepherd. He'll leave the 99 to come and find you. Where are you? And that's what he's saying here. I don't care what your trouble is. I don't care if it's financial trouble. I don't care if it's relational trouble, emotional, physical. There are so many ways for us to get lost. And the mission of Jesus Christ is to come and find what's been lost, to reclaim and redeem what's been lost. And that, that includes every single one of you. So that's the miracle that we all need. It's the miracle that you and I need. And I hope you would receive it. Because even when you think you're coming after God, he's still coming after you. Where are you? That's the first point, the miracle that we need. The next is the miracle that we want. And of course, we know the miracle that this man wants. He wants to be healed, and it does happen at the end of the passage. Look, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the miracle that he wants. And the miracle that we want, that's easier for, easier for us to identify. We all have them. We have the things that we really wish for. We're not sure if we're ever going to get them, but we wish for them. The miracle that we want is the job that you really hope you get. You pray for it. Am I going to get it? I don't know. The miracle that you want is a family that looks a particular way. I want a spouse that would be with me, somebody to love and that I can take care of, and they'll take care of me, a family. The miracle that you want sometimes is a child. Maybe you're dealing with infertility and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're waiting for the miracle that you want. Sometimes the miracle you want is that the diagnosis that the doctor gave would be overturned and changed. You're praying, you said, this is what I want. This is the miracle that I want. Those are the miracles that we pray for that we really, really want. And what's gonna come up again and again as we look at these stories of miracles is there's going to be a rub. There's going to be a note of discord in all of us because we're gonna look and we're gonna say, sometimes God gives these miracles, but I've prayed for things. I've prayed for healing and I've prayed for fruitfulness and I've prayed for a job, but I didn't get that miracle. Why is it that in this story, you're talking about these miracles, why is it that I didn't receive the miracle that I wanted? And the very best answer that I know to that question, why is it that sometimes God doesn't give us the miracles that we want? The very best and most biblical answer that I know of 
that you can possibly give to that. Why does God not give the miracles we want all the time? The best answer that I know of is, I don't know. And when I say I don't know, I'm gonna presume, I'm gonna be bold here, I'm gonna say I don't think anybody knows. And I'm saying that because I think it's biblical and I think it's true and that's my job to say what I think scripture says. But I also say it very intentionally here up in front of you as one of your pastors because it scares me when pastors stand up and say they know why God granted this miracle or they didn't grant, God didn't grant this other miracle. And then you begin to have answers that are gonna do more harm than helping. Because pretty soon you'll say, well, you know, some people have enough faith. Some people have enough faith and when they pray with great faith, that's when God answers miracles. Or you say, when God really has a beloved, that's when God will take care of you. But I know one thing. I know that I can look in scripture and say that that is absolutely not true. Because you look throughout scripture and there are people with very great faith And there are people who are beloved of God that pray for the miracle that they want and they do not get it. I'll give you an example from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The first is from the Old Testament, Joseph. Joseph betrayed, beaten, and sold by his brothers. Unjustly put in prison for we don't know how long. The best guess is around 10 to 12 years. Don't you think he probably prayed to be set free from that dungeon? Don't you think that maybe he thought, okay, after a year, three years, seven years, that's a good biblical number. After seven years, I'll be set free. No, nine, 10, 11, 12, maybe more. He prayed and God did not answer that prayer. He didn't give the miracle that Joseph wanted. That's just one example in the Old Testament. Here's one in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul the Apostle says he has a thorn in the flesh, some sort of physical ailment. We don't know exactly what it is. It was probably something having to do with his eyes. And it says, Paul says, I prayed three times that God would heal me. I prayed three times for a miracle. You can imagine the prayers that he prayed. I don't know exactly. This is a guess. This isn't in scripture, but maybe he might have said, I'd be able to serve you, God, if you'd heal my eyes. I'd be able to serve you better. I could travel farther. I could write more. I could do more. Would you please heal me so I can serve you more? And he asked God three times and all three times God answered, no. And I'm pointing this out simply to say that the miracle that we want, we can't look at this and say, you know, the miracle that we want, if we have enough faith, there must be some other reason that we are seeing Jesus grant a miracle that this man wants. And I think one of the main reasons is that it shows Jesus's priorities. Because Jesus is showing us in a very small picture in this one instance that his priority is not someone's just their spiritual life, but it's also their physical life too. He's showing us that he doesn't just care about what we do when it comes to religion or our prayers, but he also cares about every facet of your life, your family and your work and your health. He very well could have said, Look, I don't need to heal this person's legs. I already forgave him their sins. He's going to be in heaven. That's the most important thing. But he doesn't say that. And what that means is that Jesus cares immensely about what you're praying for. The miracle that you want, Jesus cares for it. There's no guarantee that he's going to answer that prayer now. 
But it is true that he cares extremely about the things that you and I care about, our families and our friends and our health. The prayers that I know many of you are praying right now for health, for healing, people that you know that are sick. This is a guarantee. It's showing us that Jesus cares immensely about our physical bodies. And so what this should do, this miracle that we want, it should help us to see that the call that we have as followers of Jesus, but also as a church, is to follow Jesus and his priorities. If his priorities are not just forgiveness of sin, and then that's it. But if it's physical things, if it's feedings, if it's healings, if it's reuniting and connecting people, we should be doing the same thing. We should be walking in the path of our Savior who's showing us these little glimpses, the world remade, he's showing us in little glimpses of what we can do. That's why Christian was out here before talking about Ren Cares. That's why he was talking about meal kits. That's why you could go on the website right now and look at Ren Cares and see Christmas for Kids and Team World Vision and uh, our ministries in Guatemala and Honduras. There's a lot more I could name, but some of them aren't, they're not, they haven't been started yet. They have to be started by people with imagination and the push and the drive that Jesus gives to people as they begin to see, this is what Jesus is interested in, this is what I'm interested in too. You have to become like those friends carrying their friend and they got to the house and it was completely crowded. What do you do now? Well, I guess we go home. No, we're not going home. I happened to, I, this is in my mind, I don't, this is in the Bible. I, I think it was one guy or maybe it was a woman, I don't know. But I think a couple of them said, nah, we can't, it's not gonna work. And one of them said, oh, we'll do something. What are we gonna do? I don't know, we're doing something. And they go on the roof and they make an opening. <laughs> Well, you're going to have to go on the roof too. If you want to participate in what Jesus is doing, you're going to have to do those things. That'll take us to our very last point, the miracle in our hands. I kind of got started on it already. The miracle in our hands. This is our third point. The first point was the miracle that we need, forgiveness of sins, Jesus leading us getting us unstuck and unlost. The second thing is the miracle that we want. We might not always get what we pray for, but it shows us that Jesus loves the things that we love. He cares about us comprehensively. Here's the third thing, though, is the miracle in our hands. This day for this guy was pretty good. Would you not agree? He was forgiven his sins by Jesus. That's good, right? He had his legs restored and healed. That's also pretty good. He was called son by the son of God. This is a banner day for this guy. It's not going to get much better than this, right? Okay, so what can we attribute this great day to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat. You can attribute this great day to the power of the God who will not let go. The, the God who will never relent in coming at you with his love. Okay, that's true. But what else can we attribute this day to for this man? we can attribute it to his friends. His friends who, by their hands, picked up the mat, the bed that he was on, and carried him. We don't know if it was his idea or not, but we do know that it was the hands of his friends that carried him there. None of this happens, none of it happens, if his friends don't say, we're carrying you over there. We're taking time from what we're gonna do. We are going to take you in our hands and we're going to bring you to Jesus. And this shows us that we have a miracle in our hands too. We have the capacity given to us by God 
to be people who have miracles in our hands. And a lot of times, it's very popular in Christian circles to say, I can't do anything, I'm a sinner, I'm worthless, I don't have great faith, fine. Okay, if you want to say all those things, have at it. But is God good enough to do things through your hands? Is he strong enough to use your little mustard seed of faith? Is he faithful enough to use your ideas and your ambitions for how the people around you can thrive? Yes, he absolutely is. And so that's what it comes down to for us. We have a miracle in our hands. And we can go and do for the people around us in beautiful and profound ways because our God is not only faithful, he's powerful. He gives us imagination to see what could be. I love to watch soccer. And I love to watch the greatest club in the whole world. The name of that club is Manchester United. They're going to play in just about two hours. They're going to play West Ham. They're a great club. You guys should all be a fan of Manchester United. I know that a few of you are not, but that's okay. I love you all anyway. See some Liverpool fans over on the side. Anyway... As I was saying about Manchester United, they have a player, and his name is Bruno Fernandes. He's a great player, but he's a little strange because he doesn't look like a great player. He's very slender. He's not strong at all. You kind of blow on him a little bit, he'll fall over. He's not fast either. He's actually pretty slow. And Bruno Fernandes is not very good at defense, And Bruno Fernandes does not score very many goals. He scored six goals all year in the Premier League. And if you don't know very much about soccer, that's not a lot. But the one thing that Bruno Fernandes is as good at as anybody in the whole world, the thing that he excels at, the thing that he is at the top of the statistics at is a statistic called chances created. Chances created is a statistic about how you can put the people around you in a position to score. He is exceedingly brilliant. He is a genius at being able to put other people in a position to succeed. Nobody does it more in the last couple of years than him. And to create chances for the people around you, you know, you have to be really imaginative. You have to be creative. You can't do it by rote. You can't do it. It's not a program. It's not something that you can just sort of do... uh, without great imagination, and he's got it. You have to know the people who are around you. You have to know what they're good at and what they're not good at. You have to see where they've been and where they're going to go. You have to know what their gifts are and what their strengths are and what their strengths are not. And all of those things come together to help him to be somebody who's nobody's better at, chances created. Renaissance Church, you are called to be those same kind of people, the same players on the team, to be people who excel at chances created, to look around you and say, how can I create a miracle for the people around me? How can I use my hands, my skills, my gifts, my weaknesses, my struggles, how can they be used in this life to create chances for the people around me? Renaissance Church, go and create chances for the people around you. The miracle is in your hands because our Lord Jesus Christ is a miracle worker. He'll use the things that you give him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you use us in your kingdom 
to bring about miracles, miracles that are really obvious and big and powerful and profound, and also miracles that are very hard to see, miracles that are much more subtle but just as miraculous. I give you thanks for this story, and I ask that you would apply it to our hearts and help us to be motivated to follow after you and your priorities. Your priorities are bringing spiritual health to people, but also you bring physical and emotional and societal health, relational health. I pray that for every person here. A lot of us are praying for things that we need and things that we want. We don't always know why you answer some prayers in one way, but you answer others in others. But we trust you. Help us to trust you. And as we follow you, we ask that you would help us to know how much you love us. We know you do, but help us. We are, we are people that don't see it sometimes. We have hearts that are hard sometimes. So help us to know how much you love us and then help us to love you back. Help us to love you back by how we love the people around us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.